Hi guys, here we are today with Tim Whelan, VP of Engineering at Hyper Exponential. Uh, Tim, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, thank you very much, Lawrence, and, and thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Well, no, look, we've got to kick off, um, but with the word hyper exponential. Admittedly, I didn't know what it meant. Um, Emma's given me a little bit of background into it, but um, for, you know, for our viewers, what what actually is hyper exponential, rather, and where does that word come from? Uh, so hyper-exponential itself is a, is a mathematical term and uh, effectively um, describes a, a, a distribution which, oddly enough, follows sort of exponential, has exponential qualities and, um, uh, and, and, and warrants the word hyper in front of it. Um, uh, the, our, our background as a company is that we, we were founded by two actuaries um, and uh, actuaries are mathematicians with a heavy statistical bend. Um, and hyper exponential just uh, was one of the things that really appealed to them, and it it, it fits quite well because it's the, the we've as a company we've grown almost hyper exponentially, definitely exponentially actually at this point, um, and uh, what, the way that we try and operate um, and what we try and achieve and from you know a product point of view and what we try and do internally, we try and operate at that kind of speed, so it fits really well. And what's um, it specifically that you guys are actually doing? So it's uh, from the outside, it probably looks quite different. I think we um, we service a lot of insurance companies. So you could probably call us as an, an insure tech um, or something akin to um, uh, sitting along other, other um, SaaS offerings in the fintech space. Uh, but what we basically, what we really do is kind of, we understand uh, sort of decision science very well um, and uh, uh, Every enterprise uses data to make decisions. Well, hopefully they do, and I'm sure there are ones that don't, but all of them should be doing it. And uh, basically, if you think about sort of traditional big data, most enterprises have got this massive, they call it the sort of uh, unified data framework, which is a really complicated piece of infrastructure you need to manage big data. And it works, all big companies have got them and they've got these massive data lakes. Um, which works, which work perfectly with effectively that large number of data points, large uh, number of rows, quite clean data, and so on. But what most companies also have is they have what we kind of we call them sort of fragmented and sparse data sets, difficult to use data, um, and which is equally valuable, um, equally important that customers use it to drive their decisions, and that's what we do. So we basically provide a platform that lets people use those fragmented and sparse data sets. Um, and uh, at the moment, that manifests largely through helping um, in insurers with with pricing uh, liability risks. And in terms of the company mission, like what's the overarching goal for you guys? Uh, largely, it's to uh, you know in, probably to help our customers make better use of the data that they do. Um, I think the. The insurance industry is an interesting example, but I think it's mirrored across a lot of other uh, uh, sectors that have that make use of sort of financially related data. There's generally tends to be a, a a chain, a value chain of the data that it goes through various different stages. And if you think about how people use data, you have to ingest it, you have to analyze it, and then you get insights out of it. Um, and effect, and ideally, you execute on those insights. And, and in an ideal world that execution actually has an impact in the real world. Um, and our, our goal effectively is to enable 
better insights all through the the data chain, as it were, um, where we've really found a good fit is in the insurance industry. Um, but it feels you know, untapped. It's where, where people will be. Sorry, carry on. Apologies. Sorry, it, it feels the insurance industry feels untapped. So I, I've been speaking with quite a few like VCs lately. And all of a sudden, they're all like, hey, we want to get into like uh, reg tech, like regulation tech and insure tech. And it feels like all of a sudden, like insurance has been neglected for quite some time. And now all of a sudden, uh, it feels like one of those areas where there's a huge amount of emphasis and there's a huge amount of innovation. But I, I could be wrong. I'm basing this purely on just some conversations I've been having lately. I think it's 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 a relatively astute insight. I think Lawrence. I think they, uh, uh, I think when people think of the insurance industry, they probably think of those really massive multinational corporates that have been doing this for 150 years or so. Um, and we we're in an interesting position here in the UK because insurance grew out of London. Um, it you know effectively started in a coffee house in, in near Liverpool Street, um, which is why we have Lloyd's of London, which creates kind of the insurance marketplace. Um, the definitely, I think for those bigger corporates and enterprises, alongside other corporates and enterprises in similar spaces, have I think are starting to make the uh, adjustment um, and evaluating things like cloud technologies and 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 the idea of a SaaS offering, for example, or um, you know storing your data off your premises outside of you know your control and so on is the, is definitely i think that that decision point has already been reached and people are becoming much more comfortable with it but are there are a considerable number of really disruptive companies in the insurance space that are highly technical and they're approaching this from a much more of a almost like an agile point of view and for them I think those insurance companies, whether they they could be brokers or reinsurers or, or actual um, liability carriers themselves, they they definitely are tapping their own market themselves, if that makes sense. Um, and we have a, we have a, in the customers that we have, we uh, we have a range. We all the way from the super huge ones that um, you know you would know of as sort of um, for household names as well and there's some smaller ones which I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of because they kind of hidden in that insurance value chain as it were they don't deal with you know you and I will insure our cars and our houses and our lives and so on um, and through the chain before that actually gets um, uh, the liability gets guaranteed for that it passes through a number of, of stages in the chain and there are a lot of insurance companies um, in in those uh, various stages which some of them are new some of them are quite disruptive um, and uh, so I think it's a mixture of both um, interestingly from a technical point of view I definitely see uh, a lot of CTOs and CIOs that have made the transition for understanding that you don't have to control your own hardware and you don't have to have physical control over where your data is stored but they're almost responding to that and this is probably a good call to arms for anybody offering enterprise SaaS is that they would like, we kind of call it full stack transparency, but um, we expose some of our observability metrics back to our customers because it gives them comfort and confidence on, on how the system is behaving on their behalf. Um, so they're kind of swapping out, like I used to have hands-on control um, over my tech and my hardware and so on, and I'm happy to give that up, but in, in return for that, I'd like some more um, uh, uh, visibility and transparency on how it's behaving when it's inside your cloud or wherever it might be, which uh, is fair uh, enough. And it's a good forcing function for, to hold ourselves accountable 
as well at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think now more than anything, you know, people have to be incredibly careful how they manage their data. And I don't just mean from a technical standpoint, I mean, from a morality standpoint, right? We're, we're now at a stage where companies, including Rayon, we are collecting vast sums of data. Um, and we have to make sure that we manage that appropriately. Um, I mean, it, it, in terms of in terms of that, I mean, are you familiar with in terms of sorry, utilizing data? Should we say um, using it for means beyond its like basic means? Should we say, are you familiar with companies like Palantir Technologies? Yeah, yes, very. So, so I mean, again, like we are seeing this like, emergence of these AI companies as well. They're saying actually. We're not going to take your data. You manage your data, however. We're going to kind of sit on top of, of your cloud-based system, and we're just going to make sure that you're effectively using your data. I saw a smirk there. I don't know if you're uh, you're disagreeing with me on that point. No, 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 not at all. I think there are a couple of things that are quite interesting yeah. there. I think the, um, the, the first thing that leaps to mind is actually 20 years ago, looking after your data was super important, and actually data storage um was the important bit and i think we're seeing a change now where even through what palantir are doing is is the it, it's not so much the the it's what you do with the data that's important not actually looking after it um it's probably quite important to point out that, that actually what we provide at hyper exponential is uh we provide the platform and the tools um uh, people create effectively their data models and 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 um and execute them and extract the insights out of their data themselves we don't um, we we store and host you know this in our infrastructure, um, but we don't. It's not a, It's a, it's up to our customers how they you know what they kind of data they put into it. Um, AI is an interesting one sitting on top of you know mining our data. I'm, I'm I think we've seen a, a recently quite a, a, a prevalence of of a multitude of things appearing on the market from sort of Copilot to ChatGPT and those sorts of things. Um, I think the, the the takeaway for me is that um, what AI is going to do is effectively just make the known and understood bar higher than it is at the moment. Um, we're still going to want to take the output of an AI and analyze it and make some decisions coming off the back of it um, in the same way that, you know, even up to now, um, I always think of the uh, the people that now that go well. Actually, fifty percent of the code that I write comes out of ChatGPT or some sort of AI bot. Um, but actually, twenty years ago, when IDEs came on the market and people suddenly said, "Oh, well, all the boilerplate that gets generated through this framework for me means I don't have to write fifty percent of my code." So you're still writing more code. It's just that you're building on top of you know stuff that's generated for you. And I can I think that's probably where the majority of things like especially on the technology side and definitely when it comes to engineering is going to happen um, from the AI point of view. And same with what Palantir are doing is effectively is they're taking, they're almost like a meta layer on top of customers' data going, we're going to use AI to analyze your data and how you're using it and effectively just provide you more data. Um, so it's just lifting the bar of understanding and or, uh, uh, you know the clearing the more of the fog of war, uh, as it were, that we exist with most people with their data, I think. And in, in terms of background, I mean, what's your background? What were you doing before Hyper Exponential? Um, so I've been doing this for quite a while. 
um, it's a bit terrifying when I actually look back and think I've, it's, it's kind of over three decades that I've been involved in technology in some shape or form. I'm, I'm very much, I was a programmer probably before we called ourselves engineers, I think actually um, uh, very much um, so, and I and thoroughly enjoyed it. I think the first piece of commercial work that I actually got paid for was a, I think it was a TCP stack for SCO Unix. Um, back when Ethernet wasn't a thing yet, and it was you know people wanted Ethernet, but it didn't. Oh, you're have showing your age now. Sorry, say that again, Rose. I said you're showing your age there. <laughs> no, definitely showing my age now. Um, I I spent fifteen or twenty years working as an engineer, um, uh, mostly in C plus um, plus, uh, and the, but the last couple of years were in some really nice clean languages like Haskell and so on which when you spend 15 years working with C++ and then get to spend five years working in Haskell, suddenly you suddenly feel clean in a difficult to explain kind of way. Um, I, I, I largely for that period of time worked for people, um, just being an engineer and thoroughly enjoying it. Um, I, had, uh, I had a startup in the late 90s and early 2000s, and that was really, um, I was going to say, I was going to use the term epiphany, but it's it was more than that because it's you suddenly your eyes are open to actually um, if you want to bring a product to market successfully, engineering is an incredibly important but really small part of that. Um, and and uh, being a founder in a startup, when you suddenly realize, first of all, you, you have it's almost like being a new parent where you think you're prepared, and then you suddenly realize when the baby arrives that you know nothing. Um, and it's kind of similar like that when you when you are the founder of a startup. Um, and all the things that we kind of take for granted now that in the 90s people were talking about were less prevalent, but actually, you know, product management as a discipline and understanding that and understanding the 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 level of obsession that you have to have with customers um, and making sure that you are building the right thing and then validating that and so on. Um, and then the, the the people was the other side of things. I, having a very technical background, I thought I would absolutely hate having to look after people and build teams and manage them. Um, and that was kind of forced upon me as a founder um, because there was no one else to do it at that point in time. And weirdly, and I've turned up, it's one of the things I absolutely love about my job now. Um, I kind of, uh, I batch up my one-to-ones into two days a fortnight and they're kind of the best days of my month where I get to talk to people and and uh, um, and help them solve the problems that they've got on their plates at that point in time. Um, but oh, in my I, background, that was... Very... Sorry, oh, no, sorry, no, sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, no, that's okay. I was just going to say, I think the, um, in my background, that was really pivotal because the other piece that came out of that was that I realized that what I really enjoyed and I'm really passionate about is building stuff. Um, and as an engineer, you get to build stuff. It's really important to me, though, that I build stuff that's actually going to be of use um, and somebody's going to use it. I think there are engineers who will enjoy the technical challenges of solving something. Um, but I think for the most vast majority, I think I represent most engineers for us. And that, that's basically, we want to build stuff and we want to see it get used in the real world and get it solving problems and adding value. Um, what I've realized, I started to realize as, as a, a part of running that startup and subsequent to that is that what actually I enjoy is, uh, is the building part. It's not, it doesn't necessarily need to be that technical. It, it can actually be part of my role at the moment. A large chunk of my role has nothing to do with technology, otherwise than making sure that we, technology supports what we're trying to do in the right way. You know, the, your building blocks can be, uh, you know, AWS technologies, for example, but they can also be, you know, people and ideas and um, strategies and so on. 
Um, and that was what I really started to realize in the sort of late 90s and early 2000s. So the rest of my career from there onwards has largely been involved in startups and scale-ups, um, uh, taking me um, kind of all over the world. You probably can hear that I'm originally South African, but I've spent a lot of my time living here and in Southeast Asia, working with people from all over the world, generally involved in, in uh, helping companies build things, whether they are systems, products, um, strategies and that sort of thing as startups and scale-ups and, and there onwards. I think the the from a startup point of view, a couple of roles ago, I worked for a company. And I think when I left, they were doing their Series E, which is probably the sort of most mature scale-up um, that I've worked for um, in, in definitely in the last sort of like 12 years or so. And and then you've, you've taken a leap over to hyper-exponential um, again. And, and what's the size of your team there? Uh, so uh, uh, at the moment, we've got an engineering team. Well, well we call it, we, we group together product and engineering because actually you can't have one without the other, and you need you need that really close collaboration um, to deal with. So we have we've got about forty people or so at the moment um, in the technology team, grouped together um, in hopefully the most sort of pragmatic and valuable way um, into sort of vertical product teams. Do you guys spend a lot of time together just brainstorming ideas still? Or are you, is it kind of like you're now at a point of maturity where that's no longer a thing? Because I've got to be honest, I can't imagine ever getting to a point where I don't want to sit there late at night with a coffee, with the team, and just be like hashing out like ideas and just throwing things out there, testing things. It's, no, it's a really good question, Lawrence. And actually, it's difficult. It's one of those challenges that you face as a... You know, when you're a, a small startup and there's six of you and you're around a table and everybody's fully invested um, in making it succeed, you you are there for the long hours and having that coffee and having discussions and solving problems. And it's easy because you're all sitting around a table and then as you get bigger, that gets a bit more difficult. We're, we're also uh, uh, geographically distributed, um, even inside the technology team. And we, you know, post pandemic, we're also working out what hybrid means for us as well and we work really hard at keeping there are a couple of sort of startup spirit elements that we try and keep alive um, and one of those one of those is definitely is the collaboration and we built that into our processes um you know so when when somebody has an idea they will write up a proposal but if it has legs we have what we call ideation which is that collaborative can start with an empty whiteboard or a virtual whiteboard if it's happening over a call um, and and people can just spitball ideas and poke holes in it and so on. Um, and definitely one of the one of the ways of working we don't want to lose. I, th I think I mean, from my perspective, I think that as a startup ourselves, we really miss the opportunity to spend more time together. Like everyone, everyone was based in London pretty much before the pandemic, and then. During the pandemic, everyone kind of went back to their, their like respective countries, um, and we've never, we've never been able to like get everyone back in the same, in in the same city, let alone the same building. Um, but I think next year for us, that's definitely going to be yep. a priority. I think we're going to we're going to move everything to like Tenerife, genuinely, you know, just a Grand Canary, and move the okay. whole team out there. So, is when you say everybody kind of split out in the pandemic, did they did they at least stay within the country, or have they literally? No, they, they left. Like, yeah, they left. So, so when we started, like I, I kid you not, I I just 
uh, reached out to a lot of like students like UCL, Imperial College London, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, like where I, I just thought, right, I'm just going to get the best, the brightest and best minds. Um, and fortunately, I live in London. Um, that's where I met Jan um, and Emma. Um, and yeah, it was just it was very much just a case of everyone was in London. I thought by the time that, you know, we're scaling up, everyone's going to want to stay here. I had no idea there was going to be a pandemic, um, as I'm sure no one else did. And then lo and behold, the pandemic hit and everyone's like, right, I'm not going to stay in London. And they they went back to their respective countries and they never came back. So we've really like, we've built this. It's weird because I think like my co-founder, I've probably only met him 20 times. Do you know what I mean? Is, oh, we, we, we work together for like ten hours a day. Um, it, it it it's you know from the outside that's it, it that feels almost ridiculous that you know you meet your your co-founder twenty times or so. I suspect that it's more common than 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 people suspect. The for me the biggest problem is I I, I think you, if you are looking towards next year to bringing people back together. There are the the really difficult to define intangible value from having people working near each other or next to each other um, is 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 one of the reasons. So we we working on what hybrid looks for us, and we've got effectively a return to office plan. It's not really a policy at this point in time um, because there are the, you know the ability to just if you were sitting next to your co-founder and wanted to ask him a question, you could just lean over and say, "Does this look right?" or "What do you think about X?" Whereas these days you'll have to, I don't know, ping him on Slack or see, look in his calendar and see if you can find a twenty-minute slot. Or um, and and the unlocking. He's an engineer. Oh really? Okay. So, well, no, sorry, I was, I was apologies to jump in there, but I'm saying the, I'm saying the fact that they're an engineer is a challenge, right? With an engineer that they think very differently to other people, they don't want you just um, picking up the phone to them, right? They don't want you interrupting them, so they'll say like, "Look, this is my mindset." If, if unless it's completely urgent, let's speak about it between this time and this time because they're working, they're focused. But with no, like, yeah, sorry. No, it's a good point. I mean, engineers. It's, I don't think this is just engineers. I think it's anybody who's doing sort of creative knowledge work. You tend to get you get your house of cards set up in your head, um, and that takes a bit of time. And then you start actually working through moving things around. Um, and you you know somebody coming and tapping on the shoulder can then just. just cause the whole house of cards to fall onto the floor and you've got to start over again. And it's from a context, a cost of a context switch um, that can be very high indeed. Um, I think it's for us to get, getting the balance between making sure that people have got the space and the environment for that sort of work alongside having the ability to chat around the kettle or at the snack table or whatever it is might be that we have um, in place. That, and you know, if you have things in previous companies, we had something like we used to call it the headphone rule, that if somebody had their headphones on, then they were probably in had their heads down or doing something. But if they didn't, that was a signal that you could look up and go, oh, Fred's not doing anything at the moment. I'm going to go ask him the question that I want. That's not to. a bad way to do it. Mm. That's really not a bad way to like with me. I, I'm I don't believe and I'm not saying I'm right. It's just my my preference. I don't believe in the hybrid model. I'm like, right, everyone in the office work spend as much time together but again i'm at a very very different stage to say like hyper exponential but i mean in terms of company culture like what, what is it how, how do you ensure that you retain the same values how do you make sure that as you're growing you know you're still hyper exponential you're still the same company that you want to be 
Yeah, that's another really good one. And I think this is this is so important and we recognize it as such. And we do, we spend a lot of time making sure that we do get that continuity. We've got a we've got a, a actually publicly available hx.wiki set of culture documents that describe effectively what our values and principles are. Those were the brainchild of our CEO and, and co-founder and are still owned and maintained by him. And they go through people feedback into them and they go through changes and so on. Um, parallel to that, we have got a probably um, slightly onerous recruitment process for most people. Um, you know, I think it's four or five stages, even for sort of like a mid-level engineer and so on. And part of that, we, we actually have an explicit step in there, which is like a values interview. Um, uh, which is to make sure that there is kind of alignment in that. You've got to be really careful with, you know, culture um, in the in, in the sense of ensuring culture fit feels slightly wrong to me. Um, I don't want culture fit. I don't want I don't want more people like me. I want lots of, but I want people that have the same values as me that are different and think differently and have different ideas. So it's very important to make sure that you're filtering for the right things. Um, and then actually, you know, it's part of we we have. At HX, those culture documents become part of your sort of DNA as as to how you work. Um, but also, you know, we have a technology charter, um, which we've sort of like specialized some of the values and principles um, into things that are more relatable for product managers and engineers, data scientists, and so on. Um, and that is effectively, that's a set of expectations that they can have of anyone else in the team and of themselves, including me. Um, and I have, you know, I have had engineers will call me out and go, hang on, the way you're reacting to that isn't actually in line with, um, you know, something that we have in, in, in the charter, um, which means that you have to have that environment as well. So that, there are a lot of links you need to get kind of get right in the chain, which just means as well that you need to keep working on it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm a difficult person to work with, right? Just throwing that out there, be honest about it, own it. Um, but, you know, I will regularly say to my team, what am I doing wrong? Like, what can I be doing better? And I'm not doing it to try and be cheesy or win their graces. None of that. I don't care about that. It's purely about optimizing my time and about making sure that actually, you know, people, we have that culture where people can call each other out. You know, yeah. it's, and, and they, I asked it, I don't ask it all the time, sorry, I don't ask it every day, but I asked it randomly, I asked it this morning. We have like a 10 minute call in the morning with the team and we have a 6 p.m. call in the evening. And then Jan and I will like work into the night and we're pretty much on WhatsApp like seven days a week with, everyone works seven days a week. But again, that that's normal in a startup. And um, we've got this culture where it's just, so apologies, we almost went down the wrong path of having a culture where, people were just like yeah you know if, if Lawrence says we, we that's the right way to do it well, that's the way we'll do it and it was it, it was a disaster because I would tell them I would say look if I'm making a mistake just tell me and they weren't they weren't and, and now we've gone to the other way you know like it, it's it's amazing how things can change now it's just like hey listen I've made a list of all the things you're doing wrong and actually I want to discuss them with you so yeah which which I, I prefer I prefer that no absolutely and I think it, it's a it, it, it as I was going to say, as a founder, I don't think as a founder, as a leader or as a manager, that's a really important um, skill to to develop is to be able to receive that list of feedback, um, you know. And the and, and if you think about it, the really valuable feedback and the really actionable feedback is not, "Hey, you're doing a great job." It's like when you did X, you know, it had this effect, and probably you know, I'd like you to change it kind of going forward. 
but uh, uh, progressing in that stage um, as a as a people leader um, is incredibly important. And having, I think, I'd rather err on the side of having too much feedback, um, as long as it's all get you know. There, there's a respect and a, and a trust um, element to this as well. You don't want people just you know throwing um, complaints around uh, left, right, and centre. But if it's actionable and constructive feedback, I think I'd rather err on the side of where you are of getting more of it than getting to the point where. I'm very fortunate in the fact that my team naturally don't, they're not over communicators. So the value in that being is if they're saying something, it's got value, so, you know, which, which I'm fortunate about. But I mean, in terms, in terms of like hyper exponential, I mean, you've got the growing team, you've got a rigorous interview process. Do you interview everyone yourself? I, I Anybody that joins the technology team, I have a final interview with, as well, which is basically to a couple of, you know, it's 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 their last check-in before we get to an office stage, but it's also my last chance to make sure that uh, that that I think that everybody who's joining the team is effectively going to add value um, and not detract in, in any way or add more value than they're going to detract. Can I make a suggestion? Can I, because yes. I've never understood this. Why wouldn't you interview them first? Because, or, or at least like they have a phone interview and then like the first like face to face because wouldn't it make sense that actually if you don't like them like all of a sudden you know you've saved like two or three interviews your, your team don't have to interview them um yeah. very early on you, you you get a gauge of it no or is it more technical than that no it's not it's not that at all there's two there's two reasons why that doesn't really work one is it's not scalable um we did it we 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 grew considerably last year um, and if I spent, if I had to do sort of intro interviews with everybody that was joining the team, um, that's largely what I would spend my time doing. Um, so there's that side of things. Uh, I suppose if your hiring slows down a bit, definitely that becomes more practicable. But actually, the the more important bit for me is that I have worked really hard, and it's not actually it's not an I. We've worked really hard at HX and at the um, uh, uh, inside the technology function to build that level of trust and expectation all the way down. Um, and I don't want to take that away from an engineering manager who's backfilling for a back-end engineer or a designer or something like that. Um, they, we've set a level of expectation and we have quite clear alignment up and down the stack. Um, and I don't want to take that away from them. And the, the flip side of that is that um, it is incredibly rare for me to exercise my veto when it comes to that final interview. It just doesn't really happen. Um, we we work really hard, you know, continual improvement is one of our sort of like internal mantras at HX. Sorry, and I, I should have pointed out around the hyper exponential is a lot of syllables. So we we just, we internally, we shorten it just to HX. Um, we work really hard on the interview process and we are continually improving it um, and, and trying to understand when things do not progress as we expect, then we do spend some time trying to understand exactly why and then work out if there's some way that we can backtrack a check for that further on so that we do short circuit things um but it's it's generally um it, it at the moment it's working really really well we, we've had we had really low churn last year um, across the company um which that's is rare you know it, it it is rare but i think it's um it, it's a signal that actually the our recruitment process is working quite well and our recruitment process goes from you know being screened by one of the talent people all the way through to an offer and then rolls on into it flows into the onboarding and the probation period so we kind of look at 
the recruitment process doesn't end when you start on day one. It ends when you pass your probation, um, normally sort of three or six months down the line. Um, and make, we make sure that we can set you up for success to do that. Um, but it also means that we've got that final lever that we can pull if we really need to um, during probation, um, which again, I don't think we've really ever exercised, which is another and, signal that the interview side is working quite well. I mean, and, and in terms of like the changing market environment, again, like kind of leading on from what we were discussing earlier, there seems to be a lot of opportunity for the insure tech space, but you know, it's impossible to ignore the challenges that 2023 are already posing for businesses. Um, how are you guys adapting? I think uh, just as, you know, I suppose any company that's done as well as we've done so far um, or has a, a certain level of success would be, they'd be foolish not to look at um, how they can expand or incrementally grow what we, you know, what they've, the market that they've already penetrated into. Um, the, the market challenges aside, um, the, the reality is, is that insurance is huge. It, um, it, it Everyone needs that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in some countries it's second to defense and that's about it as far as actual, you know, overall spend is concerned. If you think about it, anything that has any vague risk that gets done by someone gets insured. Sure. Um, and uh, so it, it tends to be huge from that point of view. So quite honestly, from a hyper exponential point of view, um, you know, we our, our future is is you know focusing on what we do well and what we've done well up to now. You know, um, that general problem of of uh, helping people work with data better um, and and share their data and extract valuable insights and decisions out of them um it is what we've done so far what we've done well we've got a huge amount that we can still look at in the insurance industry um we're, we're a, we are already i think a critical part of the sort of data enterprise data landscape for our customers um and you know so we'll just keep looking to leverage that in effect um the i think in, in my world, from a technology point of view, there's some really interesting challenges coming. There's, you know, AI is that weird looming, looming thing. We've kind of talked about it already before, and I think it's less of a AI for us is going to be how do we accommodate the output of AI as into the various value chains and so on. But we also have, and I think this is probably very common for SaaS products, that SaaS offerings that deal with data is that there's kind of an arms race between, you know, doing things faster, uh, quicker, you know, bigger, shorter latencies and all that sort of thing and um it, you had that interesting thing and this is one of the great things about um actually building things that people use is that uh you'll, you'll talk to customers and they say well we need it this big and so you build it for them that big or maybe with a bit of spanner but as soon as you give them that facility they'll come back and go oh actually can it be this much bigger or this shape or something like that um and that's a continual evolution and i think um part of hs success is you know, we have a great product and we have great product market fit, but we really are customer obsessed, not, to, you know, from the product point of view and customer discovery and the engineering that we do. Um, we're really good, I think, um, at making sure that the engineers are think about what this is going to be, the impact, the work that they're doing is going to have on customers. And then all the way down to sort of the white gloved enterprise experience that we offer as a service kind of thing. Um, and, uh, so I think that's probably is 
it's one of the reasons why we've been successful and, and one of the reasons why I think we, if we carry on growing without losing sight of that. Um, great ideas are fantastic. Incredible engineers are awesome for implementing things. But if you don't have people to sell it to and you don't look after the people you sell it to. Uh, oh, you won't be in business for a second. Yeah. No. I mean, and, and just, 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 I mean, final point, because I've got, I've got to ask you about this chat GPT. Um, you know, obviously everyone's been playing around with it. Um, I think you, did you mention Copilot as well earlier? Yeah. So and we're seeing uh, some like cool AI tools coming out at the moment. Um, have you seen, is it called voice? Well, I, I think it's coming out. It's, uh, like, I'm, I'm, it sounds like I'm plugging them, but I think they come out like 24th of February. Um, on okay. the school, and you can essentially like change your voice into like anyone else's voice. It's uh, it's crazy. I mean, uh, for, I mean, in in your opinion, I mean, where's this going? And are you are you an advocate for all these very fast changes? I think uh, you're right. There's a lot of there's a lot of things changing and a lot of new things coming on sort of the AI front, which is quite wide and broad. Um, and I think you know the things like ChatGPT and Copilot um, and, and Diffusion and those sorts of things are going to have an impact. I think from a technical point of view, they're just going to, like we talked about earlier, they're just going to change what the base level looks like. Um, for things like what you I haven't heard of, of voice, um, you know, but I they came are, across it the other day. I think it's one of Elon Musk's like latest um, okay. invest. I think he invested in it. I think like I, I definitely saw a video with him. Like I, you don't even know if the video is real anymore, but um, you know, it's uh, yeah. I definitely saw a video with him using it and testing it. Okay, I, you know, with things like that, it's it's the world has to change its approach, and it actually probably comes down to how we start preparing young people for this, because um, you know, even before AI came out there, there with the proliferation of social media, and, and uh, I don't know sources which are very loosely called news sources um, out there, making sure that everybody is equipped from a critical thinking point of view is absolutely fundamental to making sure that we don't and you've seen what happens in the weird echo chambers that people bury themselves into even before ai starts sticking its its head into things um and i, I think uh, uh, ai is just going to accelerate that process so things like the you know faking the voices and faking a couple of years ago we were seeing uh, you know um, fake videos of donald trump saying things that he you know to all reports he wasn't actually doing um, so making sure that we've got the tools and, and, and as society and are uh, prepared and able to evaluate that kind of things and start, you know, applying a bit of critical thinking to it is um, is going to be the key bit for me because I it's difficult to predict where it's going. I, from a technical point of view, I get super excited. Some of the stuff yeah. that's happening, or from a technological point of view, is absolutely incredible. And there's some of the brightest people in the world that are smashing stuff out um, at, at a rate of knots, and it's really you know. Uh, 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 fun to have a look at it and um, and and have a dive and uh, try and understand how it's kind of coming about. I've got three kids though, and uh, you know from that point of view as a parent, I'm kind of going. I need to make really sure that my kids are educated and equipped and have the tools. Um, That's what Rayon's about, right? So so Rayon, you know, you know, you know, we pride ourselves on being the um, you know the world's best user experience for creating a startup. But the reason we're doing this and the reason we're doing it in the emerging tech space is because of the threat to the jobs market. Now, I personally don't see AI as an enemy of jobs. 
I think AI used in the wrong way by the wrong people is an enemy of jobs. But I kind of feel that actually, like in terms of like the education system, it, it can it takes decades, right? Singapore is the best example of this. It takes decades mm. to make um, meaningful changes in the education system. But I think that actually with the introduction of artificial intelligence, and when I talk about artificial intelligence, I'm really talking about like like machine learning, right? More than anything. Mm. Um, I think that is something that can be used as a tool to actually predict the trajectory of the jobs market and ensure that actually you know the education system is relevant so if anything i think that you're right i mean i think that definitely um there's a threat to it but at the same time i think there's going to be more demand for kids who are like highly emotionally intelligent you know i I think we'll have more doctors and nurses and carers and any like even salespeople, anyone where it's just like a more human touch like needed right so i think i think i i, I very much agree but i also think if you there've been other revolutions in how we do things in the past couple of hundred years i think that at the time of people going this is the end of you know workers and it's the end of people doing this and it's going to destroy our jobs um, and all it's done is changed the job market and it's changed how people do things and what people work on. Um, uh, not necessarily always, um, you know, to the, 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 the best result or direction. And I think, you know, I agree with you as well. It's not, I, I hesitate to call it AI. Um, it is, you know, for the most part, I think it's machine learning. Um, and uh, it's going to just going to change the base of how we think about these things and it'll change it's changing like like you said it'll change the job market it's not going to it's not going to take it away no but yeah it could but again the other thing that the only thing i would say and i'm going to sound quite quite contradictory here this isn't the industrial revolution this isn't putting people in a factory and saying go and pull this lever and do it for 12 hours a day you know and this isn't even like the internet this is kind of like this is an advancement that none of us are familiar with none of us are prepared for it's completely new and it's smarter than us as chat gpt has already proven well yeah i i'd agree with everything you said right up to i don't think it's smarter than us because even if you want to call this artificial intelligence it's not general intelligence um you know chat gpt has come up with some really interesting pieces of content it's also at this point in time still very easy to confuse um uh, itself i think the 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 value that's going to come out of things like jack gpt is when they are targeted towards some things of preparing you know the boilerplate stuff the go out and gather all of the 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 content you can find about agriculture in nigeria in the 1980s um prepare it as a bit of an essay and then i'm going to build on top of it from that um they it, students it, I, I are don't, definitely I, using I, it yeah. Every, every oh, no, yeah. in the world is definitely using it. But look, I mean, I, yeah. I, I want to ask... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, sorry. I was just going to say, absolutely. But that just means that we need to change how we look at education. That doesn't mean we should be fighting against it. Yeah, It I'm, could be a I'm, tool to remove, you know, when calculators came out and everyone said, this is going to destroy the ability to do mathematics. It didn't do that. I don't think it changed it much at all, but it just means that we sped it up to a certain extent on the sort of implementation side. And we need to do the same thing with AI. And look, I, I just want to finish on a final note, um, going back to hyper-exponential, 
what does the future hold for you guys? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a difficult one to answer in any kind of like sort of definite terms, I think. Um, I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, we know that doing what we've been doing um, has been successful. Um, so we will largely just keep doing what we've been doing, but doing it, you know, doing more of it and getting better at from a, at least from a technical point of view, like I've touched on, you know, getting speedier, getting yeah, more capabilities, more scalability and all that sort of thing. Um, so that we can, because the, the H, HX's future is in that, you know, helping customers with their data and helping customers with difficult data. So we just, we need to work out what it, that looks like from a product point of view on the, on, on, on the sides of what we do at the moment um, and look at how we uh, get that into customers to add value, which then in turn add value for us. Well, Tim, uh, thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what is uh, uh, next for Hyper Exponential. Fantastic. Lawrence, it's been a great chat. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.